Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of Two of the Guns of Bull Run, a story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Guns of Bull Run, a story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altshieler. Chapter Thirteen: The Seeker for Help, Part Two. Harry found a letter from his father awaiting him. Colonel Kenton was now in Tennessee, where he had been joined by a large number of recruits from Kentucky. He would have preferred to have his son with him, but he was far from sure of his own movements. The regiment might yet be sent to the east. There was great uncertainty about the western commanders and the Confederate resistance there had not solidified as it had in the east. Harry expected prompt action on the Virginia field, but it did not come. The two armies lay facing each other for many days. June deepened, and the days grew hot. Off in the mountains, to the west, there were many skirmishes, with success divided about equally. So far as Harry could tell, these encounters meant nothing. Their own battle at the fort meant nothing either. The fort was now useless, and the two sides faced each other as before. Some of the invincibles, however, were gone for ever. Harry missed young comrades, whom he had learned to like. But in the great stir of war, when one day in its effects counted as ten, their memories faded fast. It was impossible, when a boy was a member of a great army facing another great army, to remember the fallen long. Although the long summer days passed without more fighting, there was something to do every hour. New troops were arriving almost daily, and they must be broken in. Entrenchments were dug and abandoned for new entrenchments elsewhere, which were abandoned in their turn for entrenchments yet newer. They moved to successive camps, but meanwhile they became physically tougher and more enduring. The life in the open air agreed with Harry wonderfully. He had already learned from Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire how to take care of himself, and he and St. Clair and Langdon suffered from none of the diseases to which young soldiers are so susceptible. But the long delays and uncertainties preyed upon them, although they made no complaint except among themselves, and then they showed irony rather than irritation. "'Sleeping out here under the trees is good,' said Langdon, "'but it isn't like sleeping in the White House at Washington, "'which, as I told you before, "'I've chosen as my boarding-house for the coming autumn.' "'There may be a delay in your plans, Tom,' said Harry. "'I'd make them flexible if I were you.' "'I intend to carry them out sooner or later. "'What's that you're reading, Arthur?' "'A New York newspaper. "'I won't let you see it, Tom, "'but I'll read portions of it to you.' "'I'll have to expurgate it, or you'll have a rush of blood to the head. "'You're so excitable. "'It makes a lot of fun of us. "'Tells that old joke, hayfoot, strawfoot, when we drill. "'Says the Yankees now have 300,000 men under the best of commanders, "'and that the Yankee fleet will soon close up all our ports. "'Says a belt of steel will be stretched about us.' "'Then,' said Langdon, "'just as soon as they get that belt of steel stretched,' We'll break it in two in a half dozen places. 
but go on with those feats of fancy that you're reading from that paper makes fun of our government says mcdowell will be in richmond in a month just the time that tom gives himself to get into washington interrupted harry but go on makes fun of our army too especially of us south carolinians says we've brought servants along to spread tents for us load our guns for us and take care of us generally says that even in war we won't work they're right as far as tom is concerned said harry we're going to give him a watch as the laziest man among the invincibles it's not laziness it's wisdom said langdon what's the use of working when you don't have to especially in a june as hot as this one is i can serve my energy besides i'm going to take care of myself in ways that you fellows don't know anything about watch me he took his clasp knife and dug a little hole in the ground then he repeated over it solemnly and slowly god made man and man made money god made bee and the bee made honey god made satan and satan made sin god made a little hole to put the devil in what do you mean by that tom asked harry i learned it from some fellows over in a maryland company it's a charm that the children in that state have to ward off evil i've a great belief in the instincts of children and I'm protecting myself against cannon and rifles in the battle that's bound to come. Say, you fellows do it too. I'm not superstitious. I wouldn't dream of depending on such things. But anyway, a charm don't hurt. Now go ahead, just to oblige me. Harry and St. Clair dug their holes and repeated the lines. Langdon sighed with relief. It won't do any harm, and it may do some good, he said. They were interrupted by an orderly who summoned Harry to Colonel Talbot's tent. The colonel had complimented the boy on his energy and courage in bringing Stuart to his relief, when he was besieged in the fort, and he had also received the official thanks of General Beauregard. Proud of his success, he was anxious for some new duty of an active nature, and he hoped that it was at hand. Langdon and St. Clair looked at him enviously. He ought to have sent for us, too, said Langdon. Colonel Talbot has too high an opinion of you, Harry. I've been lucky, said Harry, as he walked lightly away. He found that Colonel Talbot was not alone in his tent. General Beauregard was there also. You have proved yourself, Lieutenant Kenton, said General Beauregard, in flattering and persuasive tones. You did well in the far south, and you performed a great service when you took relief to Colonel Talbot. For that reason, we have chosen you for a duty yet more arduous. Beauregard paused, as if he were weighing the effect of his words upon Harry. He had a singular charm of manner, when he willed, and now he used it all. Colonel Talbot looked keenly at the boy. You have shown coolness and judgment, continued Beauregard, and they are invaluable qualities for such a task as the one we wish you to perform. I shall do my best, whatever it is, said Harry proudly. You know that we have spent the month of June here, waiting, continued General Beauregard in those soft, persuasive tones, and that the fighting, what there is of it, has been going on in the mountains to the west. But this state of affairs cannot endure much longer. We have reason to believe that the northern advance in great force will soon be made, and we wish to know, meanwhile, what is going on behind their lines? What forces are coming down from Washington? 
what is the state of their defences, and any other information that you may obtain. If you can get through their lines, you can bring us news which may have vital results. He paused and looked thoughtfully at the boy. His manner was that of one conferring a great honour, and the impression upon Harry was strong. But he remembered. This was the duty of a spy, or something like it. He recalled Shepherd and the risk he ran. Spies die ingloriously, yet he might do a great service. Beauregard read his mind. "'We will ask you to be a scout, not a spy,' he said. "'You may ride in your own uniform, and, if you are taken, you will merely be a prisoner of war.' Harry's last doubt disappeared. "'I will do my best, sir,' he said. "'No one can do more,' said Beauregard. "'When do you wish me to start?' As soon as you can get ready. How long will that be? Your horse will be provided for you. In a half hour. Good, said Beauregard. Now, I will leave you with Colonel Talbot, who will give you a few parting instructions. He left the tent, but, as he went, gave Harry a strong clasp of the hand. Now, my boy, said Colonel Leonidas Talbot, when they were alone in the tent, I've but little more to say to you. It is an arduous task that you've undertaken, and one full of danger. You must temper courage with caution. You will be of no use to our cause unless you come back. And, Harry, you are your father's son. I want to see you come back for your own sake, too. Good-bye. Your horse will be waiting. Harry quickly made ready. St. Clair and Langdon, burning with curiosity, besieged him with questions, but he merely replied that he was riding on an errand for Colonel Talbot. He did not know when he would come back. But if it should be a long time, they must not forget him. "'A long time?' asked St. Clair. "'A long time, Harry, means that you've got a dangerous mission. We'll wish you safely through it, old fellow.' "'And don't forget the charm,' exclaimed Langdon. Of course, I don't believe in such foolishness. I wouldn't think of it for a minute, but, anyway, they don't do any harm. Good-bye, and God bless you, Harry. The same from me, Harry, said St. Clair. The strong grip of their hands still thrilled his blood as he rode away. His pass carried him through the southern lines, and then he went toward the northwest, intending to pass through the hills and reach the rear of the northern force. He carried no rifle, and his grey uniform, somewhat faded now, would not attract distant attention. Still, he did not care to be observed even by non-combatants, and he turned his horse into the first stretch of forest that he could reach. Harry, being young, felt the full importance of his errand, but it was vague in its nature. He was to follow his own judgment, and discover what was going on between the Northern Army and Washington, no very great distance. When he was well hidden within the forest, he stopped and considered. He might meet Federal scouts on errands like his own, but the horse they had given him was a powerful animal, and he had good weapons in his belt. It was Virginia soil, too, and the people generally were in sympathy with the South. He relied upon this fact more than upon any other. The belt of forest into which he had ridden ran along the crest of a hill, where the soil evidently had been considered too thin for profitable cultivation. Yet the growth of trees and bushes was heavy, 
and Harry decided to keep in the middle of it, as long as it continued northward in the direction in which he was going. He found a narrow path among the trees, and with his hand on a pistol-butt, he rode along it. He expected to meet someone, but evidently the war had driven away all who used the path, and he continued in a welcome silence and desolation. Coming from an army where he always heard many sounds, this silence impressed him at last. Here in the woods there was a singular peace. The June sun had been hot that year in Virginia, but in the sheltered places the leaves were not burned. A moist, fresh greenness enclosed him, and presently he heard the trickle of running water. He came to a little brook, not more than a foot wide and only two or three inches deep, but running joyfully over its pebbly bottom. Both Harry and his horse drank of the water, which was cold, and then they went with the stream, which followed the slow downward slope of the hill toward the north. After a mile he turned to the edge of the forest and looked over the valley. He caught his breath at the great panorama of green hills and of armies upon them that was spread out before him. Down there, under the southern horizon, were the long lines of his own people, and toward Washington, but much nearer to him, were the lines of a detachment of the northern army. Between, he caught the flash of water from Bull Run, Young's Branch, and the lesser streams. Behind the northern force, the sun glinted on a long line of bayonets, and he knew that it was made by a regiment marching to join the others. The spectacle, with all the sombre aspects of war, softened by the distance, was inspiring. Harry drew a long breath, and then another. It was in truth more like a spectacle than war's actuality. He counted five colonial houses, white and pillared, standing among green trees and shrubbery. Smoke was rising from their chimneys, as if the people who lived in them were going about their peaceful occupations. He turned back into the forest and rode until he came to its end, two or three miles further on. Here the brook darted down through pasture land to merge its waters finally into those of Bull Run. Harry left it regretfully. It had been a good comrade, with its pleasant chatter over the pebbles. Two miles of open country lay before him, and beyond was another cloak of trees. He decided to ride for the forest, and remain there until dark. He would not then be more than fifteen miles from Washington, and he could make the remaining distance under the cover of darkness. He followed a narrow road between two fields, in one of which he saw a farmer ploughing, an old man, gnarled and knotty, whose mind seemed bent wholly upon his work. He was ploughing young corn, and although he could not keep from seeing Harry, he took no apparent notice of him. The boy rode on, but the picture of the grim old man ploughing between the two armies lingered with him. The fence enclosing the two fields was high, staked, and rided, and presently he was glad of it. He beheld on a hill to his right, about a half-mile away, four horsemen, and the colour of their uniforms was blue. He bent low over his horse, that they might not see him, and rode on, the pulses in his temples beating heavily. He was glad that grey was not an assertive colour, and he was glad that his own grey had been faded by the hot June sun.
Halfway to the protecting wood, he saw one of the men on the hill, undoubtedly an officer, put glasses to his eyes. Harry was sure, at first, that he had been discovered, but the man turned the glasses on Beauregard's camp, and the boy rode on unnoticed, praying that the same luck would attend him in the other half of the distance. End of chapter 13, part 2